2 Kings chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 8. We will be all in and all over 2 Kings chapter 2 tonight, so you can put the bookmark there, leave your finger in the page, or bend the corner if you don't think that's sacrilegious or something. 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 8, and Elijah took his mantle and he wrapped it together and he smote the waters of the Jordan River and they were divided hither and thither so that they too, Elijah and Elisha, his protege, went over on dry ground. Somebody say a miracle. And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, here's all I want. Let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, here's how we'll know if it will happen. If God will allow you to see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass that as they still went on and they talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and it parted the two asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it. And he cried, my father, my father, there's the chariot of Israel. There's the horsemen thereof. But he saw him no more. So he took hold of his own clothes and he rent them in two pieces. Then he took up also the mantle of Elijah that had fell from him. And he went back and he stood by the bank of the Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and he smote the waters. And he likewise said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Just like Elijah had smote the waters, he smote the waters. And he said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Can we pray? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this chance to be together. We pray your blessing upon it. We pray that you'd use us for your kingdom's purpose. We ask it in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. You can be seated. This past week, I was in St. Louis for meetings. Don't worry, I've been tested twice. I'm all right. And while there, we were touring our fellowship's headquarters building. I had never done that. And we were going through the division of publications, and I came across a stack of the Pentecostal Herald the 100 years of the Jesus name message commemorative issue, and here it is right here. And uh, I thought it was kind of odd. I mean, it was printed in 2013. There were just stacks of them laying there. I, I didn't know why, but anyway, the gentleman there, he said, go, why don't you go ahead and take one? So I, I grabbed the copy on the top of the stack. I started to leaf through, and my thumb quickly flipped to the final page. And the title of the second to last article, it caught my eye. And the title is Pioneering on the Miramichi. <laughs> Little old New Brunswick, who would have known it? We're famous. We made it in the Pentecostal Herald, praise God. <laughs> now, I read the, the article in this issue, and I want to share with you a few of the excerpts from it. <clears throat> the article says this, The little church at Hazleton would not hold the crowds. So we got a lot of land from Chester Mitchell, who had been an elder in the Baptist church. Sister Mitchell was the organist in the Baptist church. She used to come play piano for us. 
And one of her friends said to her, you must feel like a missionary in going with those people and playing piano. No, answered Sister Mitchell, I go there because I feel I need what they have. And Brother Mitchell said, if this is of God, I want it. And if it's not of God, I will fight it. But evidently, they were convinced it was of God, for they were baptized in the name of Jesus and received the gift of the Holy Ghost. And through this, that land was donated to the Pentecostals for them to build a building upon. Later in the article, it talks about the convention at Newcastle Bridge, how it was on. And so we got a real large truck, and so many were on the truck that there was no room to sit down. So they had to stand up all the way from Doaktown to Newcastle Bridge. Quite a number received the Holy Ghost there, and two received the Spirit on the truck on the way back. In the next two or three weeks, about 60 received the Holy Ghost. It was in this time period that, that Chester Mitchell received the Holy Ghost. There would be, later in the article it says, there would be as many as a thousand people waiting on the old bridge and up and down the shore waiting for baptism. And with this outpouring, there came a great spirit of prayer and travail for souls. The men were praying in the woods everywhere. They would cut down a tree and they would make an altar out of the stump. It was not unusual to have many seeking the Holy Ghost. What a hunger in the hearts of the people for the Lord. The man who wrote this article, I'm not sure even who it is or when it was written, but he speaks of when C.B. Dudley had a powerful touch of the Holy Ghost. I stopped into Brother Dudley's one evening and he said, you're just in time for family prayer. While praying, the Spirit of the Lord came on a sister who was visiting. And I said, not CB, the author of this article, I said, Sister, God is going to fill you with the Holy Ghost. And Brother Dudley began to pray for her, saying, Lord, fill her. And I said, Campbell, pray for yourself and the Lord will fill you too. And when I laid hands on him, he received a mighty baptism with the Holy Ghost. No stammering, but the Holy Ghost just poured out of him in speaking in tongues. When I left the house, it was a still, cold, frosty night. When almost a mile away, I could still hear him talking in tongues in a strong voice. What a time he had. We had two or three prayer meetings every night for a while. We had to have meetings in different homes because of the large numbers seeking the Holy Ghost. Just one or two homes would not accommodate the crowds. They received the Holy Ghost everywhere, in the yards, in the homes, in the barns, everywhere. God poured out His Spirit. He tells one final account. A man named Perry Munn testified that he was going to the spring for a pail of water. And when he started to run, the Holy Ghost came upon him, and he said he actually stood on his head. I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds powerful. <laughs> he says, Perry could not read or write, but God taught him to read the Bible, though he could not read a newspaper. Perry ended up going to Durham Bridge. He had a revival there, and he built a church. Now, this is just one article from this particular magazine documenting from our region of the world. And it gives us a small snapshot of what things were like back then. And I thank God for our heritage. I thank God that back in the previous century, various men and women had a burden for Atlantic Canada. And they preached and they planted churches all up and down the Miramichi River and beyond. I thank God for the rich heritage that the province of New Brunswick and this region more broadly has. 
We have been privileged to be able to send missionaries that have spread the gospel of Jesus Christ literally around the world, some of which are from this very congregation. We have trained young men and women in our district Bible college and our churches, many of whom have continued on to impact the kingdom greatly. I thank God for the elders in this local assembly, some that have passed on and some that are still with us. Their burden and consecration has gotten us to where we are today. And to begin naming names would be a fool's errand and a difficult task, for I would no doubt leave someone integral out unintentionally. Retrospection is good every once in a while. It reminds us that we stand on the shoulders of giants. It reminds us that we dwell in houses that we did not build and reap from vineyards that we did not plant. We are beneficiaries of prayers that perhaps we did not pray, but were prayed in some cases decades ago by those that have gone on before us. Retrospection. It can be healthy. But if you'd allow me, I would like to turn the coin to the other side because too much retrospection can be unhealthy. If we aren't careful, we can idolize the past and think that back then was some golden age and that our current day pales by comparison. It is human nature, after all, to look at our past through rosy-colored glasses, to maximize the good and to minimize the bad. And articles like this, they are wonderful. And I thank God for being able to go back and read about times back then. But articles like these, they often, like our memories, highlight the mountaintop experiences and neglect to mention the hardships. That's why too much retrospection can be dangerous because we can begin to compare our everyday experiences and the slow plodding along of building God's kingdom to a previous generation's highlight reel. Now, thankfully, this article, it also gives us a dose of reality. The author says, the first winter we held meetings in our new church at Doaktown, the lumber was still very green, which would prove to come in handy because one night they tried to burn the church down. They threw a bottle filled with gasoline in a window. Lester Brown, a brother who lived across the road, noticed the fire and he put it out. We could not hold meetings there for a while. We had to go across town to Doaktown proper and hire a place for a while. Final statement. There were not very many who received the Holy Ghost. They had struggles and they had challenges back then too. They had setbacks too. And so let us not make the mistake of idolizing the past and thereby thinking that the greatest days of revival are behind us. It's probably true you wouldn't hear anybody in a testimony service stand up and say, I remember how it was back then. There weren't very many that received the Holy Ghost. But it was a reality. And thank God this man felt led to share about it. You see, whatever your opinion of yesteryear, while we cherish and celebrate the past and all the ways that God has moved in years gone by, the truth is we can't go back there. And while we celebrate the lives of people like Raymond Priest and C.B. Dudley and Milford and Marguerite Stairs, while we cherish our elders and we celebrate their, their heritage, 
With all due respect to them, they're gone on to their reward and they're no longer with us. They're no longer preaching. They're no longer reaching. They have left us. And if we are contented to only ever reminisce about how God moved for our elders way back when, and if we only talk about the Azusa streets and the Topeka, Kansases, but we are never able to share our own stories from our own lifetimes, then we must stir ourselves and start asking God to do it again in our generation and in even greater measure because we want to have our own stories to tell. In my Bible, I read that the glory of this latter house shall be greater than that of the former house. And so I want to stand on the Word of God and believe that He is not done outdoing Himself, but He is going to show Himself mighty in this last day. Come on, how many want some stories to tell in our generation? How many want to see God move like he did back then? But do it today, God. Do it in our lifetimes, God. Do it before you come back for your church, God. Oh, hallelujah. Ralph Waldo Emerson, he's quoted as saying this time, like all times, is a very good one. If we but know what to do with it. In other words, we determine our own spiritual destiny as we join together in this generation and ask God to give us our own stories of His miraculous power. The truth is that each generation must cultivate a desire to have their own experiences with God. Secondhand stories are wonderful. We celebrated these secondhand stories, but nothing can take the place of firsthand experiences. I want my own stories to tell. Now the question, the question asked by Elisha in our text has been in my spirit for this service, for our church. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Where is the Lord God of that previous generation? Where is the Lord God that moved like that for our elders? It's a cry of retrospection, paying homage to the past, but also a cry of passion, asking God to do it again. Do it again. God, I saw you do it for him, but I want to see you do it for me. I saw you move back then, but I want to see it in my day also. I want to see it. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? We can easily idolize those who came before us, can't we? I'm all for honoring elders and paying respect. But the truth is they were just normal people who had a supernatural God and a hunger for that God. James, the pastor of the New Testament, he says in James 5.17, he says, Elijah, one of the subjects of our text in the sermon tonight, Elijah, he was... As human as we are, in the King James, it says he was a man subject to like passions like as we are. Elijah, ladies and gentlemen, was just a normal guy. James says so. He faced the same problems we do. And if you read his story in the scripture, you will see that he faced depression and fear. Elijah had anxiety. He was lonely at times. <laughs> He had a tendency to over-dramatize the bad and downplay the good. He had a pessimism problem. 
I can relate sometimes, can't you? He was, he was a normal guy, and he faced average, ordinary, everyday human problems. But in the same breath, James says he, he may have been normal, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. And then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. And so, yes, he was a normal God, but he had a hungry for an, extra, for an extraordinary God. He was a normal guy, but he, but he had a great God. And so when he prayed, things happened. And so, too, it can be with us. But here's the problem. If we idolize our elders, if we idolize people in Scripture and those that have gone on before, idolization can bring intimidation. Because here's what, what happens. We think that we are too normal. <laughs> and, we, and we think that we can never see it happen for us like it happened for them. But I've come to tell you that the same God that moved mightily through Elijah is able and, and ready to empower Elisha. The same God that used people in the 20th century is ready and able and willing to use passionate people in the 21st century. How God moved in the previous generation, let me remind us all, He desires to do even more in this end time era, in this end time generation before Jesus comes back for His bride. But it does not happen just because it's in our heritage. God's kingdom, God's church, not globally, but certainly in a local context, the church is only ever one generation away from extinction. We cannot receive this just because we have the heritage where it happened. We cannot ride the coattails of our elders on into glory. It only happens when this next generation gets hungry for it and start seeking after it. And that same spirit that Elisha had would cry out and say, where is the Lord God of then? Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Now let me tell you for a few minutes about Elisha, the younger of the two prophets. We first encounter him, and when we do in the scripture, he is going about his business, he's working a job, and uh, God sees this young man, and he's about to give him an opportunity to step into his destiny. 1 Kings 19, verse 19. So Elijah went, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, plowing a field. And there were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. And Elijah went over to him, and he threw his cloak across his shoulders Slapped him across the back with his mantle, and then he walked away. Now, you may not know it, but Elijah, the older prophet, he was on a specific assignment from God to go and find this young man named Elisha to be his replacement as a prophet for Israel. God had his eye on this young man, a passionate young man. God saw what was on the inside of Elisha and had a calling upon his life. And you will notice a few things from this passage. First of all, you will notice that Elisha was busy working when Elijah struck the young man with his mantle. It was not a glamorous job. It was not a clean job. It was kind of a smelly job. Let's just, you know, kind of put ourselves in his shoes for a moment. He's standing behind a team of two oxen yoked together. He's plowing, tilling up a field. Standing behind oxen. You know what comes out of the behind of oxen? 
So it's not the most glamorous job, but it seems that Elisha is faithful to his post. And I just got to say, God can use people that, that are committed and faithful, even in the small things. This is an aside. This will be free for you. But, you know, every time Jesus called somebody, they were working a job. <laughs> he called fishermen. I know there's different scenarios. Please don't misinterpret me. But, but he, he called fishermen. He called tax collectors, tent makers. They were hardworking tradesmen. They had jobs. Moses and David, they were shepherds. And God had an anointing on their life. Samuel, he had a job in the temple, keeping the lamps burning. It seems that God likes to use people that aren't afraid to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty and break a sweat working. I'll just leave that one right there. You'll notice that from the text, but the, the scripture goes on in verse 20, and it says, Elisha, in response to the older prophet, he left his oxen standing there. He ran after Elijah, and he said to him, first, let me go and kiss my father and my mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. A declaration of intent to follow the will of God. There's something in me that desires what you have, and so get ready, here I come. And then Elijah replied, go on back. Do what you said, but, but think about what I've done to you. Think of, of the significance of this moment. I've just struck you with my mantle. I've just let you know that God has a call on your life. So don't step in haphazardly, but count the cost of following me and thereby God. Consider the sacrifice of pursuing God's will in your life. And Elisha takes this statement to heart and to show how serious he was. The next verse tells us that Elisha returned to his oxen and he slaughtered them. He used the wood from his plow. The thing that he had found sustenance in and, and the thing that he made a living off of, he, he takes that plow and he uses it to build a fire to roast their flesh. And what he had used in a previous season now becomes the fuel for the sacrifice that will propel him into the next season. And so he passes around the meat to the townspeople. They all eat. And then he went with Elijah as his assistant. In an act of deference and consecration, Elisha slaughters the oxen and burns the plow, perhaps so that he'll have nothing to go back to if, if this season of following the will of God, if it gets difficult and the road gets tough. You know he's serious. You know he means business. And, and how much easier is it for all of us to serve God when we make up our minds that that I'm not leaving any back doors or any backup plans to go back to if things start to go awry or if I get offended. You know what? I'm all in for Jesus. I'm all in for the kingdom. It's His will or nothing. Give me Jesus. That's the spirit of Elisha. And so Elisha leaves what is familiar and he goes to serve the man of God. We don't know really many of the specifics of the relationship between the two prophets all we really know is that probably for about 10 years, the young man served the elder. They did most everything together, and some believe that they even shared living quarters. Elisha was faithful, following around the prophet and serving in whatever area and way needed. But the day finally came for the older man to leave this earth God was getting ready to call Elijah home. And it becomes apparent in the text that, that both Elijah and Elisha and others, that, 
that they all knew what was coming. Again, in 2 Kings chapter 2, flip back open if you would. But going back to verse 1, it came to pass when the Lord would take up or intended to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. These were the final hours of Elijah's life and the Lord was sending him on one final journey through a few specific places before he called him home. They would go from here, Gilgal, and they would visit Bethel and they would go on to Jericho and they would finally end up on the shores of the Jordan River. And this journey, it had a practical purpose. In these towns, you'll read and you'll see that the two men visited the sons of the prophets, who were companies of dedicated men called by God to study the scripture and teach the people. These groups in these various towns were perhaps similar to our modern day Bible colleges. It's almost as if Elijah is doing a, a farewell tour, if you will, saying one final goodbye to these young prophets that he had likely mentored through the years. But the journey also had a symbolic and spiritual purpose. Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho, and then on to the Jordan River. They were important places in Hebrew history, each of them bringing a powerful reminder of God's power and faithfulness among God's people. Gilgal was the first place that the Israelites camped after they crossed the Jordan River and entered into the promised land. And as they got up that morning, I can imagine that the two men, they may have reminisced and talked about God's faithfulness. This is where God brought us to. This is where we camped. This is a part of our story. And then they moved on from Bethel, we will read in a moment. And Bethel was a place where both Abraham and Jacob had an encounter with God. It was at Bethel that Jacob saw the angels ascending and descending that staircase that reached to heaven. And it was there that God promised the patriarch that he would be with him and he reestablishes his covenant there. On to Jericho. And Jericho, of course, is the site of Joshua's first victory after entering the promised land. And here the walls fell flat when the people of God shouted in praise. And finally they ended up on the shores of the Jordan River and it was here that God had miraculously parted the waters, allowing an entire nation of Jews to have safe passage across into their promised land of Canaan. And so we read on in verse 2, And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, stay here in Gilgal, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said unto him, I made a promise to you many years ago. As the Lord liveth, and as long as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they go down to Bethel. It becomes very evident the more we read about Elisha that he was a very dedicated man to the will of God and to the man of God in his life. Wherever Elijah went, Elisha went with him, even to the end. Verse 3, and the sons of the prophets, these, these Bible college students at, at Bethel, you know, these sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha the younger and they said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? Don't you know that your, your leader is going to be called, called home? And Elisha said, yes, I know it. But be quiet. <laughs> That's the polite way. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah, Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here. I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And, and he said again, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And so they came to Jericho. And again, the sons of the prophets, the, the Bible college there in Jericho, these students, they come and they say, 
Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Terry, I pray thee, stay here in Jericho, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan, to the river. And he said, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I'm not leaving you. And they too went on. I like this verse, verse 7. And 50 men there from Jericho, 50 Bible college students, the sons of the prophets, they went and they stood to view afar off. And they too, just the two, stood by Jordan. It lets us know that there will always be those that stand in a distance and spectate, but there is a special anointing for those who serve and participate. Only two went a little farther. And it was in this moment that something very significant happens, that Elijah, he takes his mantle, and the Bible says that he wraps it together, and he smote the waters there of the Jordan. And they were divided hither and thither so that they too went over on dry ground. Now you have to understand the symbolic nature of this journey. It's as if Elijah was doing a little bit of reminiscing of his own. Thinking back on all all the ways that God had moved for generations in the past. And I can imagine that, that these two men were being retrospective as they passed through Bethel. Oh, this is where God met Abraham and and God met Jacob here, our patriarchs. This is our heritage. I can imagine as they passed through Jericho, they they reminisced about the walls falling and how Joshua pronounced a curse if anybody would ever rebuild those walls. Certainly as they passed through the Jordan River on dry ground, they would have been reminded of how God fulfilled his promise to give their people their own land way back when. It was a little walk down Israel's memory lane as they journeyed. All the stories from the Torah that Elisha, no doubt as a young boy, was told. They were flooding his mind and memory. And I imagine he got to thinking, wow, hasn't God been faithful? Through every dark valley, through every low point, through every difficulty, through every battle, God's been with us. Hasn't God done it? God did such great things back then for them. But thankfully, Elisha had a holy hunger in him to not just let the stories from Israel's past, the monuments of Bethel and Jericho and Jordan, all the miracles that God had done through his mentor, Elijah, he had a hunger and a desire to not see them stop with him. But he wanted to have his own stories to tell. So it came to pass when they were over that Jordan River that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I'm taken out of here. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. Now that may seem arrogant, but but Elisha was not being haughty. Elisha was just hungry. He was hungry for the things of God. Give me a double portion. I've seen you do miracles, Elijah, but, but I want to see even greater things happen in my generation, not so that I can get the credit, but so that God can receive the glory. I want to see it. So give me a double portion. And, and I'll paraphrase, Elijah said, I can't do that, but if God will allow you to see me go up, then it'll be granted to you. And so then the chariot comes, the horses come, and they, they, part, they part the prophets, and then Elijah goes up and Elisha saw it, verse 12. 
And he said, my father, I see the chariot, I see the horseman, but he, he didn't see Elijah. And, and so he rends his clothes in a moment of grief. But he picks himself up. And the Bible says that he took up also the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him. And this young man, the younger, the current generation in this particular time, he went back to that same place where miracles had happened in the past. And he stood by the bank of that muddy Jordan River. I'll pause here to say, I remember a few years ago hearing Brother Bounds, Aaron Bounds, preach at a youth congress and saying how the mantle of Elijah, it didn't fall on Elisha, but it fell near Elisha. The mantle fell near him because the Bible says he had to pick it up. To which I would say it is possible to be in the proximity of something powerful but, but miss it for ourselves by not taking a hold of it for ourselves. We can be in the, in the proximity of wonderful, powerful, and great heritage, but if we don't take it upon ourselves to pick up the mantle of the previous generation and get a hold of God for ourselves, then we will miss what God wants to do through us. So Elijah goes up, and the mantle comes back down, and it falls near Elisha. And in this moment, that younger man had a choice. Will I be satisfied with the stories of old? Or will I seek to see God do it again through me? And don't forget, Elijah, Elisha, excuse me, is now on the wrong side of a fast-flowing river. We forget the logistics sometimes as we're reading the Bible. He's on the wrong side of the Jordan. We don't think twice about crossing rivers today. We've got bridges and cars and it's easy. But back then, Elisha here is in a place where if God doesn't come through, he's stuck. God, if you don't come through for me, then I'm stuck here. I need you to do for me what you've done for those that came before me. And so he takes the mantle of his mentor. He laid hold of the heritage that was passed to him. And he goes and he stands on the banks of that Jordan and he did what he saw Elijah do. Which tells me that if you want the results of the previous generation, you have to do the same things that the previous generation did. They were a generation that stood for truth even when it hurt, even when it was inconvenient. Yes, they were normal folk, but they were faithful people of prayer. They were bold in the face of adversity. They loved souls. They loved the word and they loved God's house. And if you want the results of that generation, then you've got to do the same things that that generation used to do. And you've got to get a hold of the mantle that they possessed and say, where is the, the Lord God of Elijah? Where is the Lord God of those that came before me? I want my own stories to tell took that mantle, he smote the waters, and he said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? If I'm going to make it, I need God to move in my generation the way he moved in the previous generation. I need God to do it for me the way he did it for them. And because he was a man of passion, God honored this young man, and he parted the waters hither and thither, and Elisha went over. Music, come join me. I'll conclude. Here's what Elisha's life teaches us. Elisha's life teaches us that we are products of the things that we pursue. 
Elisha left what was comfortable. History would tell us, some suggest that Elisha's family was a wealthy family and he was well-to-do and he would have had no problem making a good life for himself if he had just stayed. But Elisha left what was comfortable to pursue the prophet Elijah and thereby the will of God. He walked with him. He pursued him until he was taken away in a whirlwind of fire. Elisha pursued the miraculous power of God, not being satisfied with mere stories from the past. And so too it is with us. We are products of the things that we pursue. But I pray that that same spirit that was in Elisha, that it would get a hold of this generation as well. God, we want to see you move for us. For them back there, the way you did it for them back there, we want to see you do it for us today. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And many years later, and I'll conclude with this, Many years later, Elijah was growing old. Elisha, excuse me. And he was doing the same thing that his mentor Elijah had done for him. Elisha, likewise, was mentoring a young man. And this young man's name was Gehazi. He was a servant to the prophet. And Gehazi, he was to Elisha what Elisha had been to Elijah. They spent every day together, no doubt. And... Some suggest that they too shared living quarters. But there was a level of consecration that Gehazi did not possess, and because of it, Gehazi missed out with God. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we read the story of Naaman the Aramean. He was the commander of the army in, in Aram. The Bible tells us that he was also a leper. He had leprosy. Now, ultimately, Naaman finds healing from his disease when he goes to the prophet Elisha and he obeys the command to dip in the Jordan River seven times. I'll spare you the details of the story, but after he rises from the water, the Bible says that his skin was made brand new like that of a little baby. It was a powerful miracle done by the hand of Elisha. And so Naaman... 2 Kings 5.15 tells us that he goes back to the man of God, Elisha, he and all of his company, and he came and he stood before him and he, and he said, behold, now I know. Now I understand that there's no God in all the earth except the God that is in Israel. In other words, the God you serve is the true God. How did Naaman know that? It's because Elisha was able to write his own stories in his generation. And that miraculous manifestation of God's power was the very thing that spoke to that pagan commander of the Aramean army. When his, when his miracle came into his body, he had revelation of Jehovah, the one true living almighty God. It's the same for us today. If we want to see, I believe if we want to see a great in-gathering of souls, yes, it takes all the diligence and all the all the administration that we can muster, but we need the power of God to be moving. And we've got to be like Elisha and say, I want to see it happen in my generation because only through that will the world know who Jesus is. But he, takes the, he, he goes to 
Elisha, and, and he says, I know that your God is a true God, but now, therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. I have a gift for you, Elisha. And Elisha said, as the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. I don't want your gifts. And Naaman urged him to take it, but he refused. Now to Gehazi, Elisha's rejection of the gift seemed unnecessary and like a gross waste. Why shouldn't we receive gifts and get wealthy for doing God's work? And so verse 20 says, But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, he said, Behold, my master just spared Naaman, this, this Syrian, in not receiving at his hands that which he brought. But as the Lord liveth, I'm going to go after Naaman. And I'm going to take some of that reward for myself. And so he concocts this story. Gehazi, he follows Naaman. And when Naaman saw him running, he gets out of his chariot to meet him. And he said, Is everything okay? Verse 22, And he said, All is well, my master. Uh, all is well, my master has sent me lie. <laughs> Big story here. My master sent me saying, behold, even now there be come to me from Mount Ephraim. There's two young men of the sons of the prophets. A couple of Bible college students came and they need some gold and some clothes. You know, Bible college students can sometimes be poor and the Bible college students say, amen. It's not true here, but it's, it's still relatable. There's these two sons of the prophets. Give them, I pray thee, a talent of silver and two changes of garments. And he goes after the gift that Elisha had rejected. And you see the contrast, don't you? How Elisha pursued Elijah, but Gehazi pursued Naaman. And Naaman, his name means pleasantness or pleasures. And so Elisha pursued Elijah and thereby he pursued God. But Gehazi pursued Naaman or worldly pleasures. That's what he wanted. Elisha desired above all else for God's miraculous provision, but Gehazi was more interested in material possessions. We are all the product of the things we pursue. Huh. What we pursue, it shapes us and it defines us. It determines our destiny and the destiny of all the Naamans out there. Because there's... A Naaman, there's, there's somebody in this world that has not yet seen the miraculous power of God like Naaman did through Elisha. We are all the product of the things we pursue. It's how it was for Gehazi. He pursued the worldly gifts that Naaman was offering. And then I'll just read the story. I think it's interesting. Verse 25, he goes before Elisha. And Elisha says, where, did, where are you coming from, Gehazi? And he said, thy servant went no whither. I'm not coming from anywhere. Another lie. And he said to, to him, he's like, you can't pull the wool over my eyes. Went not mine heart with thee when the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee. Is this a time to receive money and garments and all this other stuff? You're pursuing the wrong things. And you're missing out with God in the process. Watch this. The leprosy therefore of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever. And he went out from his presence as a leper, as white as snow. Elisha pursued the man of God and the miraculous, and in doing so received a mantle of anointing for his generation. But Gehazi, who could have done the same, he was in position to receive perhaps even another double portion blessing from Elisha. But instead, he pursued Naaman's gift and in doing so received Naaman's disease. 
We are all products of the things we pursue. And I am persuaded that the enemy in this end time generation wants nothing more than to dismantle us. To try and convince each successive generation that we don't need what our elders had. We don't need all that consecration. What they had was great, but it's not worth all the sacrifice and all the hullabaloo. If he can convince us that it's not worth it, he dismantles us in the process and dismantles us in every aspect of our life. I close with one final verse, and I'm, I didn't intend for it to be a, so somber, but I felt challenged by God today. And when you think of the life of Gehazi, perhaps one of the most sobering verses of his life is found in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 4, because there was a king that was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, and this king, he said, tell me, I pray thee, of all the great things that Elisha has done. You never read of Gehazi again after this point in Scripture. His influence is over. He doesn't play a part in the kingdom of God. And the last we hear about this protege of Elisha, he is merely reminiscing about the things that Elisha had done. Merely looking back at what the previous generation had accomplished, perhaps without much concern for how he could contribute in his generation. We are all a product the things we pursue. It would seem he never found a place of consecration before God to where God could use him to do great things. The stories ceased with Gehazi. Only ever lacing his talk with what Elisha had done and what he had heard about Elijah and how God had met them back then and that generation, oh, you should have heard the stories but they weren't first-hand accounts. And to that I say, I want to have my own stories. I want this church to have our own stories. I thank God for how, how he touched C.B. Dudley, and I thank God for all the churches planted up and down the Miramichi. I thank God that 60 years ago this year that someone felt a burden for the city of Fredericton and the community of Marysville. I thank God for all of that, but I want to tell my own stories in this end-time age, in my lifetime, in this group of people. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Where is the Lord God of C.B. Dudley? Come on, is anybody with me? Where is the Lord God of Milford Stairs and Raymond Priest? Where is the Lord God of that generation? God, do it again. God, part the waters again. God, pour out your spirit again. Oh. Oh, just stand together in the house of God and lift your hands. And can you lift your voice? And can you let that hunger, that same hunger that was in Elisha, come on, let it well up in you today.
I know the way things are, but these altars are open and you can make any place in this sanctuary a place of consecration before the Lord. But wherever you find yourself, wherever you perch yourself for these next few moments, can we just lift our voices heavenward for a few moments? And can we let that burden rest upon us? I feel that God wants to do something, that God wants to stir it up within us, that God wants to break, help us to break up that fallow ground of our hearts tonight. God, let us not pursue worldly pleasures at the expense of end-time revival. God, let us pursue you. Come on, somebody needs to shake off that intimidation for a few moments. I feel God just oppressing my spirit. Let's, let's go before God. Let's go before Him with intensity for a few moments. I need you to lift your voice here tonight. Let's pray with intentionality. Let's pray in the Spirit. Let's let that river flow here for a few moments. Down in my soul that I can't contain, that I 